Welcome, everyone. I'm Alan Miller. Uh, welcome to the next round of the Together Talks podcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Rupert Lowe. Hello, Rupert. Thanks Hello, Alan. Us. We're here in Birmingham at the Conservative Party conference at the Freedom Zone, actually in a wonderful library that Charles Dickens was the president of. And Rupert's going to be speaking later on on the panel this evening, Is Britain Working? But I wanted to talk to you, just so you know, Rupert's got a very uh, eminent background in uh, business. Um, as well as uh, have running companies in farming, uh, you know, agriculture, in manufacturing and engineering, has also been involved in the stock exchange and also has been an MEP uh, very locally, actually, for Dudley. And back in my back in my old constituency, in your old neck of the wood or your old manor, as they say, where That's I'm right. from. That's right. That's uh, right. And uh, has also been a chairman of Southampton Football Club, yes. which is a uh, uh, fascinating background. So. I want to get straight into it with you, Rupert, really, because you, as someone who understands business and has had a long career in that, these last 48 hours uh, in particular have been very interesting. But just to take us back a little bit before that, over the last three years or so, and it's not as though nothing, nothing happened before COVID, I'm not saying that, but just in terms of how the government and the opposition and most people were responding and sort of doing impositions and restrictions and lockdowns what do you think that has meant for business in particular and society generally well my my biggest well i was highly critical and, and i am critical of the way in which uh, lockdown was handled there were some terrible decisions made by the central planners as i call them who basically got almost everything wrong uh, i doubt there'll ever be a proper inquiry i doubt that you know, people will be held to account for releasing infected patients into the care homes, for the wasted money on PPE procurement, uh, for the effect on the economy. And there's, let's face it, there's only one reason we were able to afford uh, uh, um, uh, this lockdown was through quantitative easing. And I think, you know, quantitative easing needs a huge amount of scrutiny. Can you explain uh, what it is quickly? Well, quantitative easing is literally the Bank of England, and we're never quite sure who regulates the Bank of England. Uh, it's always a question uh, I ask who regulates the regulator. Yeah. The answer is uh, nobody, apparently. It's supposed to be Parliament, but as we know, Parliament has no teeth, can't even manage its civil servants, let alone the Bank of England, who are supposed to be independent. So what they do is they literally create money from nothing, diluting people's savings, diluting everything and what they then do is buy government bonds and they're supposed to be reversing QE now they've been doing it since 2008 uh, they've done a, a, nearly a trillion of, of QE and last week you know I don't know why we're all in in, in such sort of par paroxysms of debate about this 5p tax uh, 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 cut for the rich that was going to result in two billion pounds for the Treasury but as a result of uh, pension funds getting themselves into all sorts of problems in the swap market, uh, there was a rumour in the city that the British Telecom Pension Fund was called for £4 billion and couldn't afford to pay the margin call. Uh, hence, there was a general panic, again, a failure of our regulators who never seemed to anticipate any of these major problems. And the bank created another £65 billion, which takes us up to nearly a trillion uh, over, since 2008. Uh, I call it getting high on your own supply. Uh, if you or I did it, the uh, regulators would lock us up for fraud uh, because effectively they would say you're not allowed to print your own cash and spend it on, 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 on whatever you feel like. Well, so ultimately, 
This isn't new. I, I, I mean, from my time in the city, as you say, I was at um, uh, uh, Phillips and Drew, which became UBS, and then Bearing Securities, and then Morgan Grenfell. So I was in the city for about 20 years. And really throughout my career in the city, we've seen progressive intervention in the market. So you, you've seen in the secondary banking crisis in the 70s, you saw uh, the regulators and the, and the government petrified of systemic risks. So they used to intervene to prop up the clearing banks initially. In, then we had uh, 87, there was a collapse then. If you remember, Greenspan shut the markets for two hours and the Fed then uh, reopened everything. And, and they, seemed to, they seemed to miraculously have sorted it out. You then had LTCM in 1997, which is long-term uh, capital management, which was a private company that got bailed out by the US taxpayer because it was about to bring down the financial system. I mean, we've had uh, increasing amounts of intervention. And then in 2008, when, uh, when capitalism, as, or what remnant of it was left, actually uh, was, was struggling as a result of this massive downturn, or what I call actually a return to reality, uh, we suddenly found quantitative easing. <laughs> And quantitative easing, without quantitative easing, we wouldn't have been able to uh, lock down uh, and we wouldn't be able to bail out pension funds. And actually, my view is that all these bailouts are terrible. They, they misallocate capital. They basically uh, favor uh, those close to power. They mean that people who are deficient are able to stay in power. And at the end of the day, what it creates is, is huge dislocation everywhere, as a result of which you know, pe pe people uh, end up in the wrong places. I mean, raw capitalism uh, was probably in Britain uh, last uh, really in the, in, 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 you know, in, in the peak period of our, before America took over from us, when we really had privatized money, banks went bust, and, it, and there were no uh, uh, deposit guarantees. The individual was responsible for making sure he put his money in a solvent bank. Right, and in the end, it's about personal responsibility, well, which has now been, which has now been, it's been removed from everybody. Well, there's a lot of things. You're, it's fascinating. There's a lot of things that have happened since then. I mean, one <clears throat> question is, you know, the zombie companies. Do you let them fail? There's a very totally, failure is good. Yeah. It cleans out. So, it cleans out a mess. So Schumpeter's argument for creative destruction. But there, other people will say, had there not have been this latest intervention, things might have got even more panicky and out of control. Intervention when in over just COVID recently. or over, no, over just recently no. last week. Yes, it's, it's a farce. And again, anyone who thinks and the Bank of England says they're going to unwind their guilt positions. Well, let me tell you, with uh, with inflation running conservative, you run a business that they say you know RPI is around thirteen percent, CPI I think is around eleven. The fact of the matter is it's much higher. Uh, and who's going to buy a gilt yielding even 4%, 5%, 6%, nobody's going to buy them yeah. because they're locking themselves into a loss. And at the end of the day, inflation, all the expectations in the models, and again, never be fooled by these ridiculous economic models, but because whatever you put in, it, if you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out the other side. They're expecting inflation to fall sharply. There's only one way inflation will fall sharply, is that's if the economy collapses completely. And if they keep printing money like they are, 65 billion here, and I suspect if you look at what's happened overnight, you know, suddenly Wall Street's rallied, suddenly the dollar's coming off, you know, the Fed's going to go the same way. They talk a big game, but I always say watch what the hands are doing, not what the mouth is saying. And I suspect the Fed is about to go the same way as the Bank of England. And then what are people going to well, do? Well, just so if we, <clears throat> for people to follow, because... Um, 
Surely that was a failure of the political class. When um, the ending of the control of the Bank of England, the ending really of the big discussions around fiscal management, monetarism, whether you were a Keynesianist or an Adam Smith pursuant, you know, whatever, if you were Hayek, whoever you were, you had a different view and there was a conflict and it was a political one, right? It was an attempt to address the money supply, but also uh, resources and stuff like that. That seems to have gone. And, and But surely, are you making a case that the people who are elected should take back control over the Bank of England? That's the question, I suppose. Well, I, they supposed, as I say, who regulates the regulator? It's been a debate that nobody's given a satisfactory answer to. In theory, the politicians are in charge of the Bank of England, and the politicians are, in, uh, in theory, in charge of the regulators. The politicians are, in theory, in charge of the civil service. As Maggie said, advisers advise, but ministers decide. And a bit like running a company, the, the guys running the company can't actually necessarily execute but what they do is direct, and they make sure that when they ask their staff to do something, it's done. But I think we've the civil civil servants uh, have now taken control. If you like, the lunatics have taken control of the asylum, and there's nobody actually to bring them to heel, nobody to actually make them accountable to the taxpayer. And the problem we've got with QE or quantitative easing, and people need to study quantitative easing. It is there was not a comment about the 65 billion really. Uh, which the Bank of England literally again printed, having said they were going to reverse QE. Uh, and yet we have all this uh, uh, furore about, about effectively the, this 5p tax rate for the rich, which I agree with Kwasi Kwarteng. In the end, it was a distraction, and you got you know, thoroughly uh, uh, poor men like Michael Gove, who, who uses an opportunity, as did many other Tory MPs, to appeal to their electorate in the hope that they will vote for them next time round. The fact of the matter is, it, it, my view is that Liz Truss and, and Quarteng are trying to do the right thing. Maybe they didn't broke it as well as they could have done, either to their colleagues or to the country. But there isn't much time. Boris got a huge uh, uh, election majority. He should have done a lot more when he was elected. He was supposedly a libertarian. He was supposed to be a free marketeer. He was supposed to be all the things that I think they're now trying to put in place. And if you look uh, about, and what I'm going to be talking about, uh, you know, what Thatcher and Reagan did, uh, you know, they effectively, after many years of sclerotic socialism, they unleashed freedom and the individual. They cut regulation, they cut the size of the state, and we had uninterrupted prosperity for a long period of time. We also got human, humans interfacing with each other on the, on the correct basis. So, you know, it all worked pretty well. So that was done on the basis of winning hearts and minds. And whether one was a fan of uh, the Thatcher-Reagan uh, period of view or not, um, <clears throat> both sides, if you want to call them that, that of the, what used to be called the left and the centre and the right, that would involve the public and they would win them over. So Maggie's very well known for the idea that you could own your own house and like personal responsibility versus the, the idea of a bigger state and more welfare. It's, it's individual individualism and freedom versus collectivism right so but that's ultimately it's striking the argument. today that the problem it seems to me is that and it's a bit like with the lockdown regulations and mps being whipped five minutes before things not proper discussions no cost benefit analysis that there isn't a proper discussion and debate there was no attempt it seems to me you might agree with liz truss's uh, and and Kwarteng's, um you know pr proposals and then their policies but they didn't seem to take out those arguments and win them over, either with the Conservative Party or the public. 
And it strikes me that that's what's missing somewhat. There's the debate with the public to engage them. Because then U-turns are done because they haven't won that argument as well. I don't know what you think about that. Well, my view is that if they don't do something radical now, uh, then the Tories are going to lose the next election anyway. So they haven't got much time, as I say. It's by no means certain that if they do unleash uh, a supply-side revolution. And by the way, uh, cutting taxes isn't enough. You've got to effectively cut regulation. You've got to slash the size of the state. You've got to destroy the quangos and all the other rubbish that goes with, with government now. And you've got to effectively uh, uh, return the power to those individuals that actually make decisions quickly, risk their own capital, as, as true entrepreneurs do, lubricate the, the financial system in such a way that if they're successful with their risk-taking, then they make lots of money. If they are unsuccessful, then they lose money. As we know from, from you know, Stalinist uh, uh, communism, uh, they all thought they could centrally plan, you know, a pop-up factory here and a factory there and this here and that there. The central planners never get it right. The market gets it right, and m the market is lubricated by entrepreneurs. They're the people who make it work. So Liz Truss, if, if the Tories to have any chance, she's got to make this supply-side revolution work. She's got to follow Austrian school economic philosophy. She's got to encourage long-term investment. She's got to crush short-termism. And she must get rid of this dead weight that's, that's, that's crushing any form of economic spirit of, 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 the, free, of, the, of the free market. So in, what you're in, really in, talking about is leadership. And it does seem, and this is important, because a lot of the people that will be watching and that we have, there's been a big discussion, and you talked about globalists earlier, and we can come on to that as well. But this idea that they're, they're people are just... If, if not shills, they're just not very strong and they're going along with this bigger plan just to implement things. My question to you about, because you talk about entrepreneurs as well, and I think there's been a similar evacuation of leadership from the old Jack Welches to having more focus groups and business consultants and not wanting to take decisions, is what's happened to leadership, right, both political and in business and elsewhere? Well, I don't think it's lead... I think it's personal responsibility that's, that's, that's gone. And I think Gordon Brown, you know... Uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, as you probably know, and I, I stood for the referendum party in 97 because they were going to give away the pound and join the euro. It was all the same arguments that we had in 2016, really, about, about the EU. Uh, we would have ended up as a vassal state. We wouldn't have been able to leave. Jimmy Goldstone spent 50 million, saved the pound. We, we ultimately then, uh, I think, got a, a period of, of, of sort of reprieve. Nigel Farage picked up the mantle, kept it going. But... Britain, Britain ultimately is a trading nation. It's not a continental power. You know, it's not uh, a Napoleonic power. Napoleon wanted to conquer the rest of Europe and take it over. The Kaiser wanted to do the same. We could have taken Europe over after Waterloo quite easily, but we don't want to control other people. We want to trade with them. So ultimately, I think our, we are very different people to Europe. And, and what, what, the way I liken Europe, uh, the big difference, and I, and I saw this when I was in the European Parliament between us and Europeans, is unless the law tells a European he can do something, he assumes he can't. And an Anglo-Saxon will say that unless the law tells me I can't do something, I assume I can. And that is the essential difference between the two. Culturally, huge difference. So unless they, the law tells them they can, they assume they can't. Unless the law tells us we can't, we assume we can that is a huge difference. Mm. And at the end of the day, I think, I think where we, where the only hope we've got now 
is to release the creativity of, 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 of this country, of Great Britain, and assuming Scotland uh, uh, remains. I mean, Scotland's a banana republic now, as we know, funded by the English. But at the end of the day, uh, assuming they stay with us, uh, which is far from certain, uh, the, the, there is a huge opportunity, I think, to rekindle uh, all of the entrepreneurial spirit which, which built places like Birmingham originally. So you said, yeah, very important point. <clears throat> so you sound maybe to some people like you are actually a conservative and you may or you may not be. But no, no, I've <laughs> always been conservative, but I, I've, I haven't, as I said, I stood for the referendum party in yeah. 97. Uh, the Tory party, in my view, I, I, I started to question it when they supported the Maastricht Treaty, which, which has more loose ends than a plateful of spaghetti. Uh, it was a complete farce, and they all voted on it, and very few of them had read it. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it got worse and worse until 97. So I am fundamentally, I'm, I'm pro-freedom and individualism, and, where, and how I'm anti-the state. Yes, and so I, I, thinking about the last three years... That um, doesn't mean I'm, I mean, I am a Tory, yeah. rather than a Conservative, right. but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm pr primarily a believer in individual freedom. Got it. So in the last three years... <clears throat> We saw... Uh, That's why I hated the COVID lockdown. Yeah, a dereliction of duty for anyone that did believe in freedom in terms of the implementation of those things and uh, a suffocation of the idea of personal responsibility in many ways. Yeah. Um, how much of a legacy do you think there is of that? And as we move forwards, to get the kind of things you'd like to see, so there's an entrepreneurial spirit, there's dynamic productivity, which very few people want to talk about, productivity, not tax cuts or redistribution. Productivity, very important. But how you have development and the harnessing of that. How much do you think we're in the world of limits, restrictions, whether it's sustainable development or limited growth? Or, and how much do you think we, we could approach things with a dynamic um, sort of expansionist outlook in terms of wealth? Well, I, I think the disappointing thing is that the young people aren't more up in arms. It, it, you know, I, I, I'm 64 years old, 65 uh, later this month. So I'm, you know, I, I'm a bit of a has-been in that respect. But when you, during lockdown, you could see this, this uh, battle between what I call, and I'm a tail end baby boomer, but you've got these sort of mainstream baby boomers who've all made lots of money on the back of the, the post-war peace and you know, all this systemic intervention and, and printing of money and everything else. They've all done incredibly well and they've all got their very comfortable lifestyle. And the lockdown was basically your baby boomers shutting out the young, COVID didn't kill the young. I mean, for me, locking down young people was a crime, uh, and it was done by the older people who had the power. And what, what, what I was disappointed in is that young people didn't uh, pick this up and Why actually stand up for themselves more. Well, I, I honestly don't know if I'd been young, and I, 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 you know, they're our hope. You know, they are the next generation. They are the people who have got the energy, They've got the brains, they've got the understanding of modern technology, they've got all of the armory which, which actually can break down uh, uh, you know, this, this sclerotic wealth that's built up above them. And they, you see it happening. I mean, you know, in my day, it was very difficult to set up a, a business in IT or something and end up, you know, when was Apple founded? When was Microsoft founded? When was Amazon founded? You know, there's been huge opportunity and there remains huge opportunity for those people who are entrepreneurs. And I, I, I love creative destruction. You know, Kodak used to be a great firm, but it went bust because it didn't move with the times. So I, 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 what, what 
frightens me is that that younger generation weren't more vocal. They queued up and had their jab when they didn't need it. Uh, I mean, again, probably better to avoid the, the dispute over, over the, the jab, the mRNA vaccine, or it's not a vaccine, it's gene therapy. Better to stay away from that debate, the debate but they didn't need it. Yeah. You know, COVID doesn't kill the young. And yet, this nonsense about, you know, transmission, about you need a jab to stop it. Transmission. People transmit it whether they've had the jab or not. It's absolute poppycock. So I want to ask you, because we're going to go on stage in a minute, <clears throat> and we haven't got long here now, so it's like we're wrapping up a few minutes. But at our annual general meeting, our members and supporters uh, voted on us creating a kind of council, uh, almost like a shadow cabinet with different people. But if you were in a position uh, to do one thing, to say to this conference that's been going on, this is the one thing that you need to focus on in this next period. If you were coming into a company and you were, and it was Britain PLC, what would you come in and do? Well, as I said to you, Liz Truss, is, she's trying to do the right thing. She shouldn't be resiling on what she's agreed to do. She should hold her corner. And she should carry on with these supply side for, uh, reforms. She's got to then hold the civil service to account reduce the size of the state, and return decision-making and wealth creation to the private sector. And if she does that, you know, she will, I think, she's got a chance. It's far from certain whether two years is enough, Alan, and it's quite possible that, you know, she will, you know, a bit like a company who invests loads of money in, 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 in investing in long-term success, what you tend to find is they invest all their money, and then just before they actually get to nirvana where they produce all the profits, somebody takes them over. So that's what tends to happen. That's why, you know, shrewd sharks will take over those people who, who've invested long term. Part of the reason Germany's done so well with her companies is that the banks owned a big shareholding in her companies. They were immune from takeover, so they could plan very long term. But we have a very open economy. And at the end of the days, so what we need is long term investment. And we need decisions being made by entrepreneurs, not by, by, by people in Westminster who, frankly, as a result of, of, of Tony Blair and David Cameron's just as guilty, their selection policies, we've got some extremely low-grade people in Parliament. But haven't we and also, Parliament is supposed <clears throat> to be the head of the beast. Well, haven't we also, though, got <clears throat> uh, heads of companies that think they're more like campaigners now than business people? People are scared to again, talk Again, about I think you've got to draw a distinction between private companies and, and, and public companies. Public companies are owned by this faceless group of pensioners who are often represented by a fund manager who's charging them a lot of money to manage their, their cash. So what you've got is instead of owning, instead of in, in print, rich principals owning it, challenging the management, you've got these faceless pension funds who are basically representative of this retiring baby boomer generation. And what you've now got is, I think, uh, the wokery you see at companies like you know, Unilever uh, and Reckitt Benkiser and you know, all those big companies, you've got the people who run those are not entrepreneurs. Okay. They're pen pushers. And on that note, I want to say thank you very much. We're going to have to go onto the stage just to say we're going to hear much more from Rupert in a while. But we rely on you as members. Uh, we are very passionate about what we're doing to carry on campaigning uh, around these issues, uh, particularly around freedom of speech and around, you know, no mandatory IDs uh, and carrying on the campaigning work. So please join us as a member and we look forward to seeing you at our next Together Talks podcast. Thank you very much, Rupert. Pleasure.